بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين حمدا يوافي نعمه ويكافئ مزيده والصلاة والسلام الأتمان الأكملان على سيدنا ومولانا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم اللهم صل على سيدنا محمد في الأولين اللهم صل وسلم على سيدنا محمد في الآخرين اللهم صل وسلم على سيدنا محمد في الملأ الأعلى إلى يوم الدين وبعد الحمد لله والشكر لله we have now reached the final lesson in the Meccan period of the seerah of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wa Alihi Wa Sahbihi Wa Sallam and we transition from this period into the Medinan period and for the past couple of weeks we've been speaking about the intermediate stage between the Meccan period and the Medinan period talking about the Hijrah or the migration of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wa Alihi Wasallama and the Muslim community in Mecca. Those who will now be known as the Muhajirun or the immigrants or the migrants. Last week we were discussing the first part of this hijrah of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, namely the exit at night from the house of Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiallahu anhu to the cave of Thawr south of Mecca. Based on the various narrations we find in the seerah of Ibn Ishaq and Ibn Hisham and others, there were about four or five people who came into contact with the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallama in those three days and nights and right after they left. We have Abdullah ibn Abi Bakr, the son of Abu Bakr Siddiq, who we know would bring news to the Prophet after spending the day in Mecca listening for news. He would tend to his animals, spend the day in Mecca, and then go at night secretly to the cave to inform them about what was going on, what people were saying. The other person they came in contact with in this period was at least according to some narrations, Asma bint Abi Bakr radiallahu anha, the daughter of the Prophet sallallahu According to one narration, she would bring food to the cave, but we did mention there's some discrepancy here because the chain that mentions this has some weakness and we have in Sahih al-Bukhari the narration which shows that she was actually preparing the food in the house before they went out to the cave. At any rate, according to one narration, she was in contact with them in that three-day, three-night period. Another person was Amr bin Fuhayra. Now he was the Mawla of Abu Bakr Siddiq, which means he was the freed slave, but still with a client relationship with Abu Bakr. We mentioned that he would take his sheep out to pasture during the day and bring them at night to the cave to give them milk. And we have number four, a person by the name of Abdullah ibn Urayqit. Now Abdullah ibn Urayqit was from a distant Bedouin tribe. So he was not Qurayshi and he was not a Muslim. 
but he was hired to take the Prophet and Abu Bakr to Medina through a path that the Quraysh did not recognize, that they didn't know. A path that came to be known as Tariqul Hijra, the path of the Hijra. And the fifth person who came into contact with the Prophet and Abu Bakr was Suraqa ibn Madik. Now this is after they left the cave and he comes in contact with them. And we mentioned the narration about Suraqa last week. Quraysh had announced a bounty of 100 camels for whoever can bring back the Prophet and Abu Bakr dead or alive. One narration says that he saw some figures riding at the distance on some camels and he was with some people, they were sitting around and they were wondering, talking among themselves, could that be them at the distance? Now, the hadith, this version of the hadith says that Suraqa felt that they must indeed be the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, and Abu Bakr, but he didn't want to lose the bounty, he wanted it all for himself. So as they're talking among themselves, could that be them? He says, mm, no, that's not them, that's, uh, that's so-and-so. And so they sat down, and, but inside of his heart he knew this was not so-and-so. But he wanted to go on his own so he could get all of the bounty for himself. So we mentioned that story last week. And in one narration of that incident, Suraqa ibn Madik says, When I saw them, I saw one of them riding in a very vigilant, uh, cautious way, going to the front of the one rider going to the right to the left and behind always going around as if looking out for something and the person that was uh, behind him or in front of him, of him at different times was riding very calmly he wasn't riding in a vigilant way in fact he could hear some recitation at the distance so this is indicating that the Prophet was riding very calmly reciting the Quran while on the back of the camel so these are the four or five individuals who were in contact with the Prophet and Abu Bakr in those days immediately after leaving Abu Bakr's house and going to the cave and then leaving the cave. So now we come to the actual Hijra route, Tariqul Hijra. Abdullah ibn Urayqit was hired to lead them through a route that the Quraysh did not know. And it's helpful to understand how the routes would work back then. Back then, just like today, you have main routes, main highways for the caravans. So if you are with a group traveling in a trade caravan, or you are traveling with a group to visit family or tribal relations, you're going to take the main route. Why? Because the main routes are recognized, they're known, and those main routes always have at different intervals these inns or areas where water is found, where wells are strategically located, as well as spots that are built up that have supplies, emergency supplies. This has always been a reality in ancient Arabia and it existed in Islam and one of the uh, a lot of the income 
uh, of the different Muslim rulers was spent in the building and maintenance and upkeep of these travel routes. After Islam spread beyond Arabia, those routes encompassed the greater Islamic region besides the Hejaz. So you even have today, if you travel that route, you'll see old uh, landmarkers, uh, old structures that were used to house and feed the camels, provide water uh, and emergency food supplies for those who are traveling. So that existed back then. So the main route for going from Mecca to Medina would have all of these things. However, this is not the case for the Hijra route because they have to maintain their safety and avoid detection. So they're taking a different route that does not have these wells, does not have these facilities. Now, the Prophet and Abu Bakr couldn't take the route because they know people would be looking for them. So they hired Abdullah ibn Urayqit, who as a Bedouin knew the alternate routes. And a few narrations of the Hijra mention that there were actually four people on the trip. And we, we tend to think of the Hijra as that of the Prophet and Abu Bakr. But we have this individual, Abdullah bin Urayqit, and in some narrations there's a fourth person, and that is Amr bin Fuhayra, the Mawla of Abu Bakr. He kind of takes a background in the story. You don't really hear him mentioned by name. In some narrations, like the one of Umm'abad that we see today, she mentions two people between the Prophet so that's either Abdullah ibn Urayqat or Amr ibn Fuhayra. More likely it's Abdullah. So when we talk about this Hijra route, how long was it? Some narrations put it at 10 days. Other narrations put it at 8 days. If you reconstruct the Hijra route from the narrations in Ibn Hisham's uh, Sirah, uh, you find it's around 8 days. It, it all depends on how you tally up the number of stops and the places they pass by. When we look at the Hijra route, we see there's two or three stages in that route. There is the stage of danger, and then there is the stage of possible danger, and then there is the stage of traveling with relative safety. And this is what we want to look at today until we go from leaving the cave of Thawr until reaching Quba, which is marking the end of the Hijrah, as Quba was in the vicinity of Medina, and that's when he was received by the companions. So we have a narration in the Seerah that talks about the early leg of that trip. Uh, Abu Bakr, he's the one telling this story, and he says that we left Mecca, and traveled for a night and a day until the time of the noon heat began. So this is basically day one after leaving the cave of Thor. He said, I looked around searching for shade to shelter us, and I saw a rock and the remains of a shadow underneath. The, the, when you think about this, think of a large rock that's so large that itself, it, it casts its own shadow. So like a huge boulder that's large enough where it casts a shadow, you can get some shelter underneath it. He says, 
I went to it and I smoothed the ground that was shaded and I prepared it as a bedding for the Prophet wasallam. And then I said to him, lie down Ya Rasulullah. And he went to lie down. Then I looked to see what was around me in my, in my environment. And I saw at a distance a shepherd herding some sheep and he was heading towards the rock itself. So the assumption is that this young boy with the sheep is also seeking shade, making his way over to this large boulder. So the young man comes, he says, and I asked him, to whom do you belong? So he has an assumption here. What's the assumption? The assumption is that the young man is a, a slave. He's tending the sheep and he says, to whom do you belong? And he says, to a man of Quraysh. So he affirms that he was a slave. He named that person, the man of Quraysh. And Abu Bakr said, I knew him. I knew that man, the owner. I said, do your, do your sheep have any milk? And the young boy said, yes. Abu Bakr said, would you milk them for us? And he said, yes. And then he went around the animal, straddled it in order to milk it. And then Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu says that he should shake the dust off, off of the udder. Picture this. This is the, the sheep, they're going around. They're getting dusty and dirty from all the rocks and the sand and the dust. So the udder, which is beneath, is going to be dusty and dirty, which means that when you milk it, it's going to get a little bit of dust and dirt into the milk. He, Abu Bakr tells the young boy to dust the udder off so that doesn't happen and to then wipe his hands. So not just dust it and then milk it because then your hands are dirty. He says, no, dust the udder and then clean your hands and then milk the sheep. So he goes and he does this and some milk came out. Abu Bakr says that he took this portion of milk to the Prophet Sallallahu in a, a leather pouch, the kind of leather pouch you would use for water. And he said that he uh, sealed it with a cloth on top and then he poured water over the top of this over and over again until it will cool down somewhat. Why? Because it's fresh out of the udder, which means the milk is going to be warm. So he cools it down with the water and then he goes over to the Prophet ﷺ. He says, by the time I went back, he had woken up. And I said, drink this, Ya Rasulullah. And he says, the Prophet ﷺ, he drank until my thirst was quenched. That's not a mistake in the narrator. The pronoun is correct. He says, he, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, drank until I was quenched. Because his quenching was in seeing the Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, drink this milk. Such is the nature of his love, radiallahu anhu. So this is one of the first stories we encounter on the Hijra route after they leave the cave of Thawr and have that encounter with Suraqa ibn Madik is the encounter with the young boy and the milk. Day, day two of the journey, we have another incident. And this is a, a famous incident uh, in a hadith known as the hadith of Umm Ma'bad radiallahu anha. Umm Ma'bad 
she lives in a place right outside of the general area of control by Quraysh. So you have Mecca, you have the Haram, and you have the area of influence for Quraysh outside of the immediate area of Mecca. That would go generally as far as this place called Qudayd, uh, which is uh, on the second day of this journey. So in the hadith of Umm Ma'bad, it mentions an incident where they're stopping on the journey and they meet up with her. Umm Ma'bad was a very elderly Bedouin woman. And she is living in an area kind of on the outskirts, a kind of meeting point for travelers. And she, from the hadith, we get the sense that she was a very uh, jovial, happy, welcoming and generous person who would meet people who are on the road and entertain them with conversation and give them food and drink and give them, uh, uh, you know, hospitality before they head off on their journey. This time, however, the Prophet Sallallahu reaches this area of Qudayd, meets Umm Ma'bad, this elderly woman, and she and her husband are actually suffering very hard times. Who is Umm Ma'bad? Her name is Atika bint Khalid al-Khuza'iyah. Atika bint Khalid al-Khuza'iyah. And Abu Bakr and the Prophet sallallahu passed through this area of Qudayt and she was just sitting right outside of her tent. Uh, you know, the, the, the fina, this threshold right on the outside. You think of these large tents and they have the little smaller thing over it, the canopy over it in the front. She's sitting out there in the shade and they come by. Her husband is out with some of their sheep just looking to go here and there and graze them so they can find something to eat. So they come and Umm Ma'bad didn't know who the Prophet ﷺ was. She didn't recognize him. And it's the custom of the people, of course, to provide food and drink to those who are passing by. But this time, the Prophet ﷺ asked her if she had any meat and milk they could purchase. So he asked her, and this is in the hadith, it's uh, mentioned that they passed the tent of Umm Ma'bad and they asked her if they could buy some meat or dates, but she didn't have anything. It was lean times for her. And the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, when they were told they don't have anything, the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam looked over next to the tent and saw some sheep. And he asked her, what is wrong with the sheep? And she said, the sheep is fatigued and it's weaker than the other sheep. They're not moving around because they don't have enough food. Now, if, if, if sheep do not have enough food, that means they also are not producing milk. So these are emaciated, fatigued, weakened sheep because it's lean times and there's not enough food for them to find when they graze. So it's just sitting there in fatigue. So the Prophet ﷺ, he knows the reality of sheep and what they need, but he asks her another question. He says, does it have any milk? He knows very well it doesn't. He asks this question and she says, 
May my mother and father be sacrificed for you. If I saw milk from it, then surely I would milk it and give it to you. But there's no milk. And here at this point, the hadith says that the Prophet ﷺ called the sheep, moved his blessed hand over the udder of the sheep and said, Bismillah. And then he called Umm Ma'bad as the sheep began to gain strength and it steadied its feet and stood up with its udder filled with milk. He then told Umm Ma'bad to bring a large container to put the milk in. And he milked it until the container was filled and then he gave it to her. And Umm Ma'bad drank from this sheep milk until she was full. And then he gave it to those with him on the trip. So that means Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiallahu anhu, uh, who now gets to get quenched uh, also physically. Uh, Abdullah bin Urayqit, who's not even a Muslim, and Amr bin Fuhayra, according to the narration that he was the fourth on this journey. And then it says in the hadith that it was milked for a second time after they drank all the milk in the first container. They filled the container a second time and left that for her. Now, where's her husband? He's still away with the other sheep trying to find something they can eat. So they leave to continue on the hijrah journey. After they're gone, Abu Ma'bad comes. Abu Ma'bad, the husband of Umm Ma'bad, and he comes with the sheep and he sees this container of milk, which is very out of the ordinary. He knows exactly what's going on with the sheep. This is very strange. And he says, where did you get this milk from? And Umm Ma'bad said, the sheep is single and there is no milk in the house. Uh, but I swear by Allah, a blessed man came to us today. And this is what happened. And she described what happened. Now Abu Ma'bad wants to know more about the identity of these special people who came to the house. And he asked her to describe to him what they look like. Like many of these Bedouins, Umm Ma'bad was very gifted in describing the physical features of people. Uh, we have some people like that in the Shama'il, right? The person who is a wasaf or wasafa, someone who's very gifted at describing the very detailed features of someone. So he asks his wife, Umm Ma'bad, to describe him to him. And she says in this very beautiful hadith, she says, His luminous purity was very apparent, or his cleanliness was very apparent. So the first thing she's noticing about the Prophet ﷺ is that he is a very pristine and clean person. Uh, and this is very profound when you think about where he was in the story. This is after spending three days and nights in the cave. This is after traveling for a couple of days in the dusty, rocky area of, of outside of Mecca. So despite that journey, she says, Vahirul Wada'a, uh, his luminous purity and cleanliness was apparent. Ablajul Waj, his face was radiant. Hasanul Khuluq, his countenance, one, one way of reading this is Hasanul Khalq or Hasanul Khuluq, his character and his form were beautiful. Lam ta'ibhu thajlatun. He did not have 
a he did not have this uh, shape that made him uh, you, you look uh, you could say corpulent. He was very healthy and well proportioned in his limbs. And then she says, وَلَمْ تُزْرِيهِ صَعْلَةٌ Nor did he have a small head. وَسِيمٌ قَسِيمٌ He was handsome and well-proportioned. فِيَعِنَيْهِ دَعَجْ His eyes had wideness. They were spaced beautifully. وَفِي أَشْفَارِهِ وَطَفْ His eyelashes were lush and long. وَفِي صَوْتِهِ صَهَلْ and he had a very powerful voice. His neck was luminous, long, and well proportioned. The white of his eyes were extremely white, and the black of his pupils were extremely black. It was as if he had kuhul on naturally, naturally occurring kuhul without any kuhul. Naturally arching of his eyebrows. Aqran, she says. It, uh, it was as if the two eyebrows met. Now, there's a fa- famous difference of opinion among the commentators on the Shema'il and the Hadith, because some of the Hadith describe the blessed eyebrows of the Prophet as being two with a space in between. Here she's saying Aqran, as if they are together. A very famous discussion among the ulama. And the ulama reconcile these narrations in different ways. Some of them say that this was from her old age, what she was seeing from the angle of him uh, milking the sheep. Uh, Normally, for someone who could see clearly in another state, there was a slight space. But if he was angry for the sake of Allah, a vein would appear in that space. A vein would appear. And a person seeing that might think it was a single brow. So this is what we have in the commentators, in their words. She says, شَدِيدُ sawad sha'ar. His hair was extremely black. إِذَا صَمَتَ عَلَاهُ الْوَقَارِ When he was silent, he would be enveloped in an aura of respect, dignity. وَإِن تَكَلَّمَ عَلَاهُ الْبَهَاءِ And if he spoke, it was like a light protruding from him. Now, for the students of Arabic out there, you have two words here. You have إِذَا and then you have in. Uh, she says, إِذَا صَمَتَ عَلَاهُ الْوَقَارِ وَإِن تَكَلَّمَ عَلَاهُ الْبَهَاءِ The difference is very, uh, very clear because when she says إِذَا صَمَتَ she's not saying if he's silent. She's saying when because that's the norm. وَإِن تَكَلَّمَ عَلَاهُ الْبَهَاءِ And if he speaks, he is... Uh, it is like a light protruding or emerging from him. So because silence was the norm and then speaking was the exception. So that's why she uses the conditional in, whereas idha is linked to the past of something that's mutahakkik, it's already happened. Then she says, nasi wa min ba'id, the most beautiful of people and the most resplendent from afar. And the most beautiful from close. Hilwul Mantik, his speech was spe- was sweet. La Nazr Wala Hadar. It was neither terse nor verbose. So Nazr here means someone who is so brief in their speech 
It's like the, the, all they give is yes and no answers to the point where the listener is uncomfortable. If they're speaking with someone, they just say yes, no. It's like give, give, give us something more. <coughs> so that's nazar. And that leaves people uncomfortable. He wasn't like that in his silence. But at the same time, wala hadr. He wasn't verbose. He wasn't so long and verbose and detailed in his speech uh, like a person who just keeps talking and talking, like a chatterbox. It was neither this nor that. And we see that in the Shema'il time and time again. Then she says, It was as if his speech were beads of a necklace cut, where the beads are dropping down. So this means that the words are coming very beautifully one after the other. The speech is very organized and structured. It wasn't rushed. It wasn't haphazard. It wasn't stilted. It wasn't mumbled or jumbled. It was a very beautiful, uh, it, the, the diction, as we call it, was very structured and beautiful. And then she says, Rab'atun, of medium stature relative to his people. Although the other hadith tells us that when he was with other people uh, of a similar height, he would always appear taller. Then she says, لا تشنؤه من طول ولا تقتحمه عين من قصر. His height is not perturbing to the point of resentment or dislike, meaning he was not so tall in his appearance of height that it would make people feel uncomfortable. Nor is he so short that people belittle him, because this is a reality among humans. She says, غُصْنٌ بَيْنَ غُصْنَيْنٍ A branch between two branches. And here she's referring to Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiallahu anhu and either Abdullah bin Urayqat or Amr bin Fuhayra, depending on how we read the narrations. She says, فَهُوَ أَنظَرُ الثَّلَاثَ he is more radiant than them in appearance and the best of them in merit. His companions would surround him and when he spoke they would listen attentively to his speech. And if he orders them or when he orders them they hasten to fulfill the order. لا عابس ولا مفند, without frowning or refusing. So she talks about the respect that was shown to him by others. So she's noticing all of these things, this elderly Bedouin woman. And this is how she describes the Prophet ﷺ to Abu Ma'bad, her husband. After hearing this very beautiful and eloquent description, this high Arabic, he says, I swear by Allah, he is the one Quraysh has been mentioning in Mecca and I am determined to keep his company if only I could go that way. So he is expressing his desire to be Muslim. And there are narrations that state that they became Muslim on the spot. But it's unclear. There are other narrations which indicate that they embraced Islam uh, later on whenever they had the opportunity to come in contact with the Prophet So at any rate, this is day two of the Hijrah, on the route of the Hijrah, I should say. So we say Hijrah from the house of Abu Bakr, and 
uh, from the Prophet's house to Abu Bakr's house, that's one night. Then spending the day at his house, that's another day. Then you have the trip to the cave of Thor, and that's three days. And then you have another day or two. So you're going to get eight to 12 or so days tracing the route of the Hijrah, depending on your starting point. So this is in a place called Qudayd. And by all accounts, this is two days after leaving Mecca. So they're leaving the whole area going northward. So now they're going past this area of Qudayd. And this is a side route from the main route going northwards to Medina. So they're now outside of the area that Quraysh had some influence and authority over. So they're a lot safer now than they were two days ago because the authority of Quraysh doesn't really extend past Qudayd. If they were to get onto the main route, they would likely be okay. But it's still not entirely safe because who knows where people are lurking in wait to get that bounty and bring them back to Quraysh. So having left this outer boundary of Quraysh, we do find in the seerah that there was one more threatening incident. At least on the surface, it was threatening. And after that, it was a trip without any real threats or problems. So we have this hadith recorded in the Sirah works, and it's a hadith from a companion known as Buraida ibn Husayb radiallahu anhu. Buraida ibn Husayb. This man Buraida ibn Husayb was from the tribe of Aslam and from the clan of Sahm, Banu Sahm. He was living in this general area, and word got out that Quraysh were looking for the Prophet and Abu Bakr and were offering 100 camels as a reward. So Buraida hears about this reward and he sets off in this general area outside of Qudayd with 70 of his men from, from, from Aslam looking for the Prophet Buraida tells this story himself. You know, we have these convert stories, right? People convert to Islam. People say, how did you convert? And some people have very simple uh, conversion stories. Some people have very complex, long conversion stories. Well, the Sahaba, each of them have their own unique conversion story. And he tells his own conversion story. He says that the Prophet ﷺ did not believe in bad omens. You know, by calling him a companion, you already know that the story, everything worked out at the end. He says, the Prophet ﷺ did not believe in bad omens. Bad omens, you know, things that people believe bring bad luck. We have a lot of those in society. Uh, the, cat, the black cat crosses your path. Uh, you break a mirror, seven years bad luck. Walking under a ladder, 13th floor on the apartment. Uh, the, 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 on the apartment building and so on. So these are bad omens. Buraida bin Husayb says the Prophet ﷺ did not believe in bad omens, but he did believe in tafa'ul. Tafa'ul are uh, intuiting positive signs. So this is not superstition, but it is 
good signs that point to good things that happen uh, fortuitously. So you have this tafa'ul which is affirmed by the Prophet So how does that play out in this story? Buraida tells us. He says, Quraysh announced the reward of 100 camels for the capture of the Prophet And Buraida and his 70 riders found him. They found him outside of Qudayt. And when they came to the Prophet and Abu Bakr, the Prophet asked him, Man anta? Who are you? And Buraida said, Ana Buraida. Now, in Arabic, the name Buraida, it's a proper name, but it also has the meaning of something that is cooled or cooled off from, from barid or bard. So he says, I am Buraida. And the Prophet ﷺ turns to Abu Bakr and he says, our matter has cooled off now. So imagine the Prophet ﷺ and Abu Bakr are on camelback. Here is Buraida and there's 70 horsemen and they're all armed to the teeth. Where are you going to go? What's your name? My name is cooled off. He says, our, your, our affair has cooled off. And then he says to him, what tribe are you from? And he says, I am from the tribe of Aslam. And Aslam can mean the safest, right? Salima, right? Salama, you know, safety. Uh, so Aslam means the safest. So he is the cooled off one from the safest tribe. And so the Prophet ﷺ turns to Abu Bakr again and he says, Abu Bakr, we are safe. And then he asks Buraida, what clan are you from? And Buraida says, I am from the clan of Banu Sahm. Now Sahm can mean a share or a portion. Uh, it can also mean an arrow. Uh, and, and by fortune, you can think of good luck or good fortune or a good share. And so the Prophet ﷺ says to Abu Bakr, you have found good fortune. So here they're intercepted by a person who is uh, named, cooled off from the safest tribe, the clan of good fortune. So these are all good signs. These are all the positive good omens that you look for as a Muslim. It doesn't involve superstition. It just happens. And... Buraida now has his turn. He says, well, who are you? And the Prophet ﷺ says, I am Muhammad ibn Abdullah Rasulullah, the Messenger of Allah ﷺ. Seeing all of this unfold, Buraida was quite moved, looking at the links between his name and the name of his tribe and clan and everything happening. And he took shahada right on the spot. And then talking with his fellow tribesmen, they all took shahada there that very same day. So all 70 of them. And they go back to their people and the whole tribe becomes Muslim. So this is what happened. Now, Buraida and all 70 of them become Muslim. And the next morning, he says to the Prophet ﷺ, do not enter Yathrib, what we call Medina, 
except that as you enter it, you carry with you a liwa, a banner. And then Buraida took off his turban. He unwound the turban and then he tied it to this uh, spear and then handed it to the Prophet ﷺ to serve as his banner, his liwa. And then he says to him, Ya Rasulullah, you must be our guest. You know, stay with us in our tribal area before you continue on your journey. But to this, the Prophet ﷺ says, My camel is ma'mur. My camel is under command. Meaning it's under the command of Allah to show where he's going to stay and to indicate it. And so the Prophet ﷺ politely excused himself and the camel went on the journey further and didn't stay with uh, Banu Sahib. Now, Buraida would say, after mentioning this conversion story, because it's not just his story, it's the story of those horsemen as well as the whole tribe. He tells this story and at the end of it he says, Alhamdulillah, that Banu Sahim became Muslim willingly, without any force whatsoever. Meaning, there was not even subtle pressure. There was no presence of Muslims coming there with any kind of force. No, they all willingly accepted Islam even before uh, encountering the Prophet So. After this encounter with Buraida and the conversion of that tribe, the road of the Hijra was very, very smooth. When you go to the Sira works of Ibn Ishaq and Ibn Hishab and others, you see them giving the names of various places, various valleys, various uh, volcanic mountainous areas, uh, certain oases that were on the route. All of the names are there. and. It appears when you look at the main caravan route from Mecca to Medina, when you compare that, if you look at that route, and then you overlay the Hijra route, you see that there are points in the route, the Hijra route, that intersect with the main route. So this is a very visual thing. We need to write it out on a board, but you'd see a, a line, you could maybe think of a blue line as the main caravan route and then a yellow line as the Hijra route. The Hijra route is apart from that other route, obviously, but there are sections where they intersect. And you trace the step, and even after the second and the third day when everything was safe, they're getting onto the main route at times and then getting off of it. Getting on it and then getting off of it. But it was a distinct route from the main route, except in those few parts. Uh, this is likely due to the terrain and the needs for water and stuff like that. So, looking at this route, you get the impression that in the immediate vicinity of Mecca and outside of Mecca, they were taking a completely different route with Abdullah bin Uraiqit because they were starting south instead of starting north. They make their way north but off to the side. But it does seem that at around the area of Qudayd, it was a, a, a juncture where the main route and the alternative route uh, met. Because you have the hadith of Umm Ma'bad. She's known. And she's only known because her tent is near the main caravan route. We also have uh, narrations where Abu Bakr has, is encountering people on the road and he recognizes them from Mecca. That tells you that it's 
at times going onto the main route. If it was completely an alternative route that no one ever took, why is he encountering people he recognizes from Mecca? So it wasn't completely different from the main route. It would intersect at times. Now the entire journey we said took between eight to 10 days, maybe 12 days, depending on how you, you count the start of the Hijrah from leaving the house or leaving the cave. And reaching Medina, before reaching Medina, uh, as they're nearing the end of the route, they encounter one of the companions. And this companion was Zubair ibn al-Awam radiallahu anhu. Uh, one narration mentions the encounter with Talha ibn Ubaidillah radiallahu anhu. So they're encountering them on the route as they're going further and further north. Now we remember Zubair ibn Awam, remember that he was in the household of Sayyidah Khadija after his father died. And he is the son of Khuwaylid and his mother was Sophia bint Abdul Muttalib. So this is family, more or less. So he was among those who made the first hijrah to Abyssinia. But at this stage in his life, he's going south and he's encountering the Prophet ﷺ on the route. Where is he coming from? The hadith says that he's actually coming from a trade trip in, in Sham. So he was in a trade caravan in Sham buying items for trade and he's making his way back to Mecca and he encounters the Prophet and Abu Bakr. And it seems like it was a surprise. Which is, I mean, what a surprise. You know, you're, <laughs> you're on the road and you encounter your beloved وسلم, like this. So the hadith of Zubayr ibn Awam says that he encounters them on the road and he gives both the Prophet وسلم, and Abu Bakr some white garments that he purchased in Sham. The other narration mentions that they encountered Talha ibn Ubaidillah on this trip. In the hadith recorded by Imam ibn Sa'ad in his tabaqat, it mentions that Talha encounters the Prophet ﷺ on the road and Abu Bakr, and he gives both of them some white clothes that he purchased in Sham. And he tells the Messenger of Allah ﷺ that the people in Medina were anxiously awaiting his arrival and that they were feeling that the trip was taking too long. They're getting worried. So word has spread that he left for the Hijrah. But remember, that's three days in the cave of Thor. And they know the average time to get from Mecca to Medina is between eight and 10 days. But it seems like he, they would have already arrived by now. So they're feeling like it's taking too long. And so Talha ibn Ubaidillah telling him this, uh, he's, in, he's basically telling the Prophet Sallallahu that there's some anxiety among the people of Medina. And for this reason, from that point of the journey until the very end, he actually was, was hastening in the trip. He was going faster, going at a quicker pace than the previous days of this hijrah. So this is where we are in the hijrah route. They left Mecca, they go to Qudayd, the encounter with Umm Ma'bad. After this, you have the encounter with Buraydah bin Husayb radiallahu anhu. You have the rest of the days mostly uneventful, very safe, very clear. Somewhere closer to Medina, you have this encounter with uh, uh, Zubair bin Awam uh, and Talha bin Ubaidillah. 
And we get now to the tail end of the Hijrah journey. And that is their arrival into Quba. Now, the people of Medina are anticipating the arrival. They don't know when the Prophet ﷺ is going to arrive. So every single day they're going out after Fajr to the outskirts and they're perched in the trees and on higher buildings and they're looking out every single day on those routes from the south, looking, waiting for the arrival of the Prophet ﷺ. And they would stay out there waiting and looking up until the middle of the day when it was too hot to remain outside. And then they would go back in. And they were doing this day after day, waiting for that moment of the arrival. The hadith mentions that one day, after they had returned from a long time waiting in the morning on the lookout, there was a local Jewish man who was on the roof of his home, which had a high roof. And he noticed some people traveling at a distance. And seeing them, he noticed that they are advancing. And then he goes, recognizing that they're the Prophet ﷺ and his companion, he goes and shouts at the Muslims in Medina that the good fortune that they had been waiting for was there and coming to them. So the first person to see their arrival was actually a Jewish man. And then he goes and informs them, the Muslims. The Muslims of Medina, they quickly grab their armor and their swords and their spears and they go out together to receive the Prophet And what a reception and what a sight because the clothing given to them by Zubair bin Awam and Talha, the white garments of Sham, that's what they put on before they arrived. So imagine the majesty and the beauty of these two individuals, the best of Allah's creation, and then the second best after the Anbiya, on the camels, in white. So they're, they're, they're luminous and shining Hissan uh, ma'nan, you know, uh, physically and spiritually. And they see them in their white garments, these clean garments, as they make their way into Medina, shimmering in the distance. So they go out and they see this is the Prophet And there was a lot of clamor, a lot of noise, a lot of takbirat, a lot of people. And this is in the neighborhood of Banu Amr bin Auf. So all of the areas of Medina, you have neighborhoods, each one affiliated with a particular clan. The area that he was arriving, uh, entering, was the area of the neighborhood of Banu Amr bin Auf. So they arrive with great clamor and takbirat, and this was on a Monday, the 12th of Rabi al-Awwal, when the end of the hijrah was marked in their arrival into Quba. Now, after they enter this area, Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu, he gets off the camel and he goes forward to meet the Muslims. So you get the impression that they're still uh, in the, the populated area and in the open area from which they're arriving, there's still some distance, but they're waiting to receive him and they're seeing them at the distance. Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu gets off the camel and he goes to the Muslims while the Prophet is sitting quietly by the shade uh, of, of a tree. 
And the people who became Muslim in Medina, but who had never seen the Prophet were under the impression that Abu Bakr as-Siddiq was the Prophet He's that handsome. Because they never saw the Prophet their immediate impression is that he is the Prophet coming. But then they notice something. There's this person sitting over here by in the shade of a palm tree at the distance. But the shade dissipates. And now the sun is beaming on the Prophet They notice that Abu Bakr, who is in front of them and with them, sees this and immediately goes over and takes off his cloak and he covers the area over the Prophet to give him shade. And they recognize from that show of adab and respect that the one sitting beneath the tree is in fact Rasulullah So for those who never saw him, this is how they're first encountering him. Their first encounter was in seeing what it is to show adab and respect to Rasulullah And so as the Prophet has now reached the end of this journey in Quba, where does he stay? The hadith mentions that he stayed in the house of Kulthum bint al-Hidam of Banu Amr bin Auf. So this is a female Sahabi, a Sahabiya. Other narrations say that he stayed in the house of Sa'ad bin Khaythama. How, how do we reconcile these two narrations? We reconcile them by saying, as the scholars noted, the Prophet goes to the house of Kulthum and his belongings are in her house but she is not a married woman. So he's not staying in the house in that way. It's just his items. He goes to the house, leaves his things there, but he's spending all his time at the house of Sa'ad ibn Khaythama. And this is how they reconcile these narrations. This is the immediate arrival. Obviously, things will now develop in the Medinan period. Quba, as you know, is today a part of the greater Medinan area. When you are in Medina today and you want to go to visit the Masjid al-Quba and pray there, it's a short drive. But in that day and age, the city of Medina, what was once known as Yathrib, was further out from Quba, but it's in the vicinity. It's in the, the, the metro area, or it's a town right outside of Medina. It's a small area. It is the area, the greater Medinan area, if you will. It's a settlement uh, right outside the city. Now today that encompasses, uh, it's within Medina proper today. Now the question that people ask is, why doesn't he go straight to Medina, since that is the actual place of Hijrah, after all? And the answer is that the Prophet ﷺ was still waiting for people to make it there. He is still waiting, and he used Quba as the waiting place or the staging ground to wait for their arrival so that he could go with them all together into Medina. The Prophet ﷺ is waiting for Sayyidina Ali and Aisha and Asma. And when they arrive, they all enter Medina 
together. And they enter Medina on a Friday. So he arrives in Quba on a Monday, enters Medina proper on a Friday after the rest of his family catch up with him. Sallallahu alayhi wasallam. When the Ansar heard that the Prophet Sallallahu is entering, they all dress up in armor. And over 500 of them go to Quba to accompany him into Medina. Imagine this procession. 500 of the Sahaba all decked out in armor and they're all going into Medina in this very beautiful procession. Sayyidina Bara ibn Azib radiallahu anhu, he records a narration or he relates a narration in Sahih Muslim. He says, I saw the Ansar all dressed up and coming out. Over 500 men came outside, all of them armed and dressed to accompany the Prophet sallallahu The women climbed up on top of the houses and the children were crowded around to see. The Prophet sallallahu was surrounded by hundreds of people, all believers in him. We have now entered the Medinan period. Walhamdulillah, this is the new chapter. Everything has changed. Everything henceforth is now the Medinan period and this marks the transition in the seerah of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa alihi wa sallam. Walhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. And inshaAllah we begin the Medinan period uh, the week after next inshaAllah ta'ala. And we see a very clear distinction between the experiences and occurrences in Mecca and Medina. And we begin discussing the virtues of Medina and the population of Medina and the nature of the various groups so that we understand how the city worked back then to understand what the Prophet ﷺ was working with as he built that society. Wallahu wa rasuluhu a'lam wa sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. So I take this, no questions. Alhamdulillah. One question? Sallallahu alayhi wa yeah. So there are a number of hadith which mention that the clouds would hover over the Prophet out of honoring him. Uh, we have a number of narrations like this. The question is why not now? And I haven't heard any scholar address why he would be shaded with the clouds on all those previous occasions, but not on that occasion. But what occurs to me is that because nothing is accidental, everything is for a purpose, and everything that is occurring is uh, a teaching moment. And by the shade, uh, not the, by the clouds not hovering over him to shade him in that moment, what do we have? We have Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu teaching in the very first teaching moment for the Muslims of Medina how to show adab towards him by putting the shawl over him to shade him. So that was a teaching moment. 
the clouds could have shaded him, of course. But in that moment, Abu Bakr gave a lesson on how to have adab towards the Prophet ﷺ. So these are people, many of, whom, many of them had encountered the Prophet ﷺ, and they had received something of that adab from observing the Muslims of Mecca. But the bulk of the people of Medina are having their very first encounter right now as they're on the outskirts in the settlement of Banu Amr bin Auf. So the very first thing they see as a demonstration of adab is Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu shading the Prophet sallallahu So that to me seems to be a very powerful teaching moment. And perhaps that is the wisdom why uh, the clouds weren't hovering over him at that moment. Is there also a narration about uh, this bounty hunter, Sarafa's horse kind of sinking in the... Yeah, we discussed that hadith in full last week. Yeah. It was that on, on, the, on this journey? So. Yes, this was after the Prophet ﷺ and Abu Bakr left the cave of Thawr as they're making their way from the south going north. He encountered them and this was when that happened. Yeah. So you can answer this question, yes or no? The two Sahabis that you mentioned, uh, Zubair bin Awam and Iswal al-Sahab bin Umail, are the same ones who got killed in the Battle of Jamal? Uh, yes. Yeah. In the Zubair bin Amram, by him meeting him, Rasulullah uh, this probably indicates that he was one of those who came back from Abyssinia. Yeah, he came back. And you, you also get from that, that, because not all of the Muslims of Mecca were subject to the same level of persecution. You get the impression that he had a certain degree of freedom of movement uh, that others didn't necessarily have the, the, because of the lineage. Because he's traveling to Shem and coming back, this would indicate that uh, he had uh, a bit more freedom in that regard. Yeah. No. Did Abu Bakr share the mount of Rasulullah or did they have their own mounts? Yeah, so a few classes ago we mentioned this, that when the uh, indication was given, Months before the journey, Abu Bakr anhu purchased two camels and he kept them in the pen and was feeding them and watering them to prepare them so that the camel humps grow and they have the water storage inside and that when the journey was uh, drawing near, he wanted to give the second camel to the Prophet for him to ride, but he insisted on buying it for him to get the reward of purchasing the mount for the Hijra journey. Uh, so the two of them were side by side uh, when Abu Bakr wasn't in front or behind uh, guarding him and going around watching out for those in the front or the back. Yeah. 